Richard Niles back with another look at the unsung heroes of your favorite music with my history of pop arranging. Tonight, you better get down and get with it as we find out who was behind all those funkalicious hits from Motown, Stax, and Muscle Shoals. Harry Weinger is in charge of the Motown catalog for Universal Records and is a walking encyclopedia of knowledge about all things funky. I asked him the differences between the Hitsville, Detroit sound of Motown and the Soulsville sound of the Stax, Memphis, and Muscle Shoals studios. It's like a parlor game for 60s soul fans to compare Hitsville with Soulsville. Certainly Motown had its share of great soul records, but clearly the, the most remarkable difference is Motown records were well thought out, heavily arranged, quality control department that rode herd on every release. You know, only A-plus records came out. A or A-minus records are in the ball. Astonishing records are still in the ball because there was a weekly meeting where they voted, would you, if you had a dollar, would you buy a sandwich or would you buy this record? Now, they may have had a similar arrangement at Stax, but the difference there at Stax is so much of it was head arrangement. So much of it was going to the studio, let's cook it up, what comes out of it. There's more of a happy vibe with Motown. Stax is more funky and low down. Yeah, there is a remarkable difference. Our first stop tonight is Detroit, home of Motown. The Sound of Young America of the 1960s was created by a group of people working under the leadership of the remarkable Barry Gordy, who built an empire in a Detroit warehouse. Gordy had a unique gift for what would be called today people management. He would either directly produce or oversee every activity of the company, working with and grooming various teams of artists, writers, producers, musicians, and arrangers. The joyous chart busters of The Supremes, The Temptations, Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye, and Little Stevie Wonder were produced by these teams who worked around the clock under Gordy's watchful eye. Guitarist and arranger Alan Slutsky is one hell of a cool guy. He's written a tribute book to Motown's great bass player James Jamerson and produced a brilliant documentary film about him, Standing in the Shadows of Motown. Motown sound is basically an ass-kicking rhythm section with highly produced strings and horns on top of it. But it always started with that rhythm section. What was unique about the Motown rhythm section as opposed to Memphis, for instance. Memphis was, you know, Booker T and the MGs. He had like one guitar, one bass, one drum, one keyboard. Maybe you might have some horns, maybe some percussion. But it was a, it was a very, a much thinner, much simpler sound. Motown was built upon multiple guys on each chair. The one thing that's emblematic of every Motown song is the backbeat, which is those razor sharp beats on two and four you would have. In and they would just slice through the whole recording, but they acted as rhythmic anchors that everybody, all the other counter rhythms and syncopations bounced off these things. Those backbeats helped to anchor the time, 
And the other anchor at the time was Jack Ashford, who was the tambourine player. Motown sound and tambourine are inseparable. So now you got this cook and rhythm section, and then they bring in the arrangers. So often, even an accomplished songwriter, or someone we think of as an accomplished songwriter like Smokey Robinson or Lamont Dozier, they come in with scratches. They come into a room, whether it's the A&R room where there's a little piano, or it's the studio where they go on the floor with the guys, and they say, well, here's kind of the basic idea. It's no sheet music, it's whatever it is, you know? And it's up to the band to formulate a rhythm that has a great groove to it. And then it's up to the staff arrangers, because Motown hired people to be on staff. They didn't hire outside people. So many wonderful guys who were there to take these scratchings and take these basic grooves, mold them into something beautiful. And whatever it is the writer or the producer is trying to get across, it's them standing in that room and saying, I want it to be like this, or I want it to feel like this, and then it's really up to these arrangers to translate. As I walk this land So, who were the key players on the Motown arranging scene? Let's start with Paul Reiser. He was noted by Gordy as one of Motown's all-time great arrangers, known for his string and horn arrangements that merged classical traditions into Motown funk. He created the brilliant horn and rhythm arrangements on Dancing in the Street. Reiser also co-wrote What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, and as Alan Slutsky and Harry Weinger concur, that arrangement was a classic. There was always something in every chart where there was like a little hook that was, so it wasn't just like a pad of strings or something. Like on What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, when she goes, uh, I know I've got to find some kind of peace of mind. And then all of a sudden you hear these high strings. It just makes the whole chart. And Paul always had a knack to find that little lick. Paul co-wrote What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, so he had other talents as well. I think there's just a certain kind of sweetness about it that's not sentimental. That's what the strength that he had. I think Motown always had that ability to make something sweet that's not sugary. My Girl is a simple poem of Smokey to his wife. He's on the road, but he still loves her. I got sunshine on a cloudy day. Cold outside, I got the month of May. Fifth grade, sorry, Smokey. You know, that's very simple, but poignant, beautiful, simple folk rhymes. But to lay in everything else that came around it, and then of course, David Ruffin makes those words even greater because of the meanings he gives to each syllable, and he added something ethereal to it. It's beautiful. Although he wasn't there from the start, our next arranger made an indelible mark on the Motown sound. David Van de Pitt is best known for arranging the classic What's Going On album for Marvin Gaye.
David also worked with The Temptations, The Four Tops, and Stevie Wonder. I asked David about being a staff arranger for Motown. a group of four arrangers and we service somewhere around uh, 60 different producers. These uh, 60 different producers of course would have their favorite arranger but uh, there, there were times when we all were really jammed up with work because it was, it was a tremendously high volume place for four arrangers to be cranking out all the, all the material that was coming out of that place. We get to a position where I may, for instance, meet with a producer and or artist, and they'd have a selection of maybe three or four tunes that they wanted to do, and I would meet with them and uh, put together the rhythm parts, which would be the piano, bass, drums, uh, maybe some percussion, etc. Then they would decide that they would like to do some strings, they would like to do some horns, but when that time came uh, to pass, I would be occupied otherwise and couldn't do it. So one of the other arrangers would then take over and do that portion of the, of the record. So there were many times when we would follow through completely with a project, but there were other times as well where things didn't go that way. I mean, they would, uh, one fellow would do the, the rhythm tracks and another fellow would do the horn tracks and another person would do the uh, string tracks if there were some. It was just sort of um, who was available at the moment. And everybody was very competent, so there was no real problem. It was 24-7 pressure to come up with a hit, constant enthusiasm to write a hit, to be part of something special. There was a constant flow in that room of booking time and getting in there and getting your arrangement, and getting, you know, guys will wait online to be able to write those charts. The idea of the company was that we were looking for a reasonably homogenous kind of a product coming out of there, even though each of the artists was a bit different and this and that. There had to be a certain kind of a standard that we used, and in order to do that, we had to understand each other, we had to understand uh, each other's styles, and be able to take over at a moment's notice, because there were times when literally uh, it sounds silly, but we didn't go home for days at a time. We would literally just catch a cat nap uh, in the studio or wherever we could on a cot because the recording uh, schedule was so heavy. There was a time when Frank Wilson called me late of an evening and said, gee, David, you got to come over to the house. And I, I said, gee, Frank, it's really late, you know. <laughs> he said, nah, come on, you, this is interesting. So I, I went over to the house and he introduced me to a young man who was about 16 years old. And he said, this young man has a song he's going to play for you. And if fellow picked up a guitar, and I promise you, the guitar had two strings on it. And he started playing these two strings. 
he was playing open fifths and things like that and whatever have you and some thirds or whatever he could get his hands on. He was humming this song. And Frank said, you know, I said, I know there's something in this song. I said, well, yeah, I'm sure there is, Frank, but I have no clue whether this guy is in a major key, a minor key. <laughs> you know, I really don't know. <laughs> and so we recorded it on just a cassette recorder. And then what I did was play it back and play chords on the piano for the young man until I hit a chord that he thought was the right chord that he really meant to play but didn't have enough strength to deal with. <laughs> and it was chord by chord by chord until we finally hung together a verse and then hung together the chorus, you know, and sussed it out and worked with it. And it turned out to be Stone Love, which was a hit for the Supremes. But it, it just came off of a, a two-string guitar to, uh, from a, a young man who could barely play, you know. <laughs> so you never looked uh, at anything as being totally ridiculous. You had to really take a good look at everything because you never knew where the next hit was coming from. Motown was one of the first companies that put unusual kinds of instrumental combinations on pop music. We had an orchestra there that we could play with and do almost anything we wanted. I, I don't ever remember being refused any instrumentation I asked for, no matter how ridiculous it was. They would give anything a try. That adventurous spirit inspired Van de Pitt's Grammy Award-winning album with Marvin Gaye, What's Going On. The album broke new ground in many ways, not least in that it was the very first time that an arranger got a credit on an album cover. Marvin called one of the A&R directors, I guess, and said he specifically wanted me to work on this project with him. And uh, I went over to Marvin's home and met with him. And he laid out this whole concept for this album that he had in mind. And he told me, he said, I've got all the music written, it's all ready to go, and, you know, off we go. In fact, the music wasn't written, uh, the tunes weren't finished, some of them hadn't even been conceived yet, but we started wading into the project anyway. And as we got into it, I thought to myself, you know, this is not Motown. There's something different going on here. And I brought that up to Marvin several times. I said, you know, are you sure about this? And he said, absolutely sure. I said, I think we're going to have problems getting this album released. You know, I mean, this is just not uh, Motown fair. And he said, uh, well, it's going to be adamant about it. So we continue to work. And he had a concept of what he wanted to do, but he had no idea of instrumentation and uh, what have you, you know, so we had to hash all of that out and he would say, well, I have an idea of a sound in my mind and what can make this sound or what does make this sound, you know. Eventually got to the point where we had the majority of the album finished and then he said, you know, he said, we need some kind of continuity for this album. I'd like it to flow, you know, one tune into the next and I said, well, how about if we make some musical bridges to hook the songs together? And he said, uh, well, that's, you know, that's a great idea, but how will we do that? And I said, well, you know, we'll tack a piece of the next song on the previous tune, et cetera, et cetera, and then you'll just have to splice them together in the studio, and I'm sure it'll all work out and what have you. 
the story seems to be going around that the engineers themselves mixed the some kind of outtakes or something and stuck them in and bridged these things together. But of course, that's absolutely wrong. They were designed to be hung together and, and cut and hooked together. So um, when we had gotten the, all the material done, we went in and started recording. And even the musicians, uh, Marvin decided that he wanted to use some other musicians than uh, those that were normally uh, there just to try and get a different sound. And uh, when we got into the studio, the musicians were flabbergasted because they couldn't believe that he was actually recording this music. You know, it was just so different. What's going on? In this particular case, I had nothing to do with the background vocals whatsoever. Um, Marvin just went in and decided he was going to do that himself. The famous double voice story is, is incredible because it, it was going on that uh, that was a planned thing and of course it was just a happy accident. One evening an engineer by the name of Ken Sands was working with Marvin and uh, it got to be quite early in the morning and Ken was very tired and Marvin was done singing and he said, Gee, he said, which vocal do you think I should use, this one or that one? And Ken said, I'll make you a stereo copy, one voice on one channel, the other voice on the other channel, and when you get home, you can just turn off either channel, you know, and hear the two voices and see what you like. And as, it, as they were playing it back, of course, they heard the two voices together, and Marvin said, God, that's great. <laughs> Let's go with it. You know, sometimes things come from nowhere. You just, <laughs> they're totally unplanned for. The great David Vandepit showing us how happy accidents can make hits. Meanwhile, over at Memphis, something else was cooking. rhythm section of guitarist Steve Cropper, bassist Duck Dunn, drummer Al Jackson, and Booker T. Jones on keyboards were creating a new sound using a new method of collective arranging. These four guys created the backbeat for Midnight Hour and Hold On I'm Coming. Now up in New York, Ahmet Erdogan, Arif Mardin, Tom Dowd, and Jerry Wexler were laying the foundations for Atlantic Records. As legendary producer Wexler told me, his first visit to the Memphis studios of Stax changed his life with a new method of collective arranging. I saw the way these four guys came to work in the morning and hung up their coats and took out their instruments and started to play music. This was done without written formal arrangements by a group effort among the musicians, the producer in the booth, perhaps, the engineer, the artist. This spontaneous way of recording was very attractive to me. Wait 
Atlantic Records, Arif Martin. It would be a, a sort of a joint effort. Uh, we would sing a line and they would take it from there or they would come up with something. I mean, I remember writing maybe a few charts, but then they would improve. Memphis Horn, Wayne Jackson. We were all in the studio at the same time. Uh, it would be Otis Redding, Booger T and the MGs, myself, Andrew, and Floyd Newman. We were the, we were the marquee horns at that time. And uh, that's where we grew up at Stax and for 10 years. We were there on that, what we call the killing floor every day. And um, Otis would come in, like, let's just say Otis came in with a song. And Otis was a real genuine genius. He would have all the music in his head and he would take his little guitar, which was tuned to E, which means he could just make a bar chord with one finger and play up and down the neck. He would go over to Duck Dunn and tell Duck, I want you to play this, boom, to boom, boom, to boom, boom, boom on the bass. Tell Al Jackson, you know, the beat ought to be this, you know. And uh, Steve Cropper was a very innovative uh, rhythm guitar player. He came up with most all of the guitar licks and the rhythm parts. And then he would come over and get in front of me and uh, Andrew and Floyd and say, and you guys, da, 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 da. And he would be so full of fire that he would just smoke us, you know. We'd just be over there jumping up and down like chickens on a hot plate. And that's how it ran. If it was Wilson Pickett, Wilson didn't have as much uh, musical input, uh, but he and Steve Cropper, maybe myself, would have been up all night uh, working out horn parts, and uh, he and Wilson would be writing a song, six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, and I would be coming up with horn parts, and they would be singing horn parts, and that collaboration would go on all night till the next morning. We'd be in the studio around 11 o'clock, and people would show up, and we'd cut it. It was a wonderful feeling to be in a musical situation, although we didn't realize, we thought that's the way it was, was and would always be, that uh, we could write a song at night and shave and get a nap and go cut it, and it would be out in 30 days. But that is not <laughs> reality in today's music business, but uh, it certainly was in those days, and it worked very well for us. Whether it's my idea or Andrew's idea, or whether it's something from the control room, from the producer. We'll stop right then, learn it, we'll cut a track with trumpet and saxophone, and then we'll stack that to a second track, and there's probably, that track will probably be where the harmony parts are. And then I'll put trombone on the third track, usually on the root, so you have a low root and a high root and two, <laughs> root and two and harmony parts <laughs> on the second track. Mustang Sally. Master of understatement, the rootin' tootin' Wayne Jackson, who with Andrew Love made up the backbone of the Memphis horn section. So how did they manage to make such a distinctive sound? Our tones have always matched up. I have a real airy, wide sound, and Andrew does too. So we had that as a God-given gift when we first began to play together. See, you're a trumpet player and you're looking for a saxophone player to be your buddy, the thing you have to remember is that his tone and your tone have to really spread on like peanut butter on light bread. It just has to be smooth 
and thick and gummy. If I wake up at 4.30 in the morning with a headache, I know he's awake at 4.30 in the morning with a headache. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Oh, I guess I have to put your flat feet on the ground. When we're on the road, we breathe together, we eat together, we think together. It's a, it's really a wonderful thing to get that close to another human being, and, and one way to do that is in a musical situation because it requires your heart and your mind and, and your spirit. Yeah, Wayne, what better way to stick together than with a layer of peanut butter? As Jerry Wexler told me, the Muscle Shoals set up was similar to Stacks, with everyone contributing to the arrangement. You're no good, I would come down on a Friday, meet with, well, let's call him the arranger, because although there were no written arrangements, we had to make a layout. Again, I have to keep using the word arranged, but this is not a formal arrangement. And if it was Aretha Franklin or Wilson Pickett or Solomon Burke, or, we'd get the key, we'd get the layout. That would all be done on a Friday. Monday morning, we'd start at one o'clock. The musicians would get this layout, and it was just a series of numbers on a piece of paper. We would work this system of playing these chords, and then getting the interstices, the in-betweens, and then bringing in the singer, and then laying down the rhythm track. Aretha Franklin's first track, and I never loved the man. That was done live. We got the layout. Aretha was at the acoustic piano. Spooner Oldham, I don't know if it's a Fender or a Wurlitzer, probably a Wurlitzer. This was our first record together with the Muscle Shoals. She understood what we were trying to do. And Spooner Oldham was the hero of that session because he came up with the lick that became the basis of that. Dun, da -dun, da -dun. Now that sounds like nothing, you know? But when you orchestrate this and our whole band is playing it, you suddenly realize that it has meaning. It's got a lilt, it's got a kick to it. And this is what kick-started the whole record. Just as David Vandepitt talked about the backing vocals on Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, Arif Mardin had a story to tell about backing vocals for Aretha Franklin. Aretha, first of all, has no problem covering a song which was already a hit. Okay, Dion did it, I can do it too. The background singer, that was fascinating to me because they must have worked at Aretha's house for hours or maybe days. It's a very complicated part. So when we were doing it in New York at Atlantic Studio, some of the musicians from the South came to New York, like Tom Cogbill and all that. And uh, the girls were already pressed the button, go, Forever, da -da -da, da -da 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 -da. And it's a complicated part because the beat gets turned around and they were perfect. Aretha would play the, the piano and musicians would look at her left hand, bass player would look what she's doing, guitar player would look at her how she's voicing a chord. The whole arrangement would stem from her piano.
I'd like to wrap up our whirlwind tour of Motown, Stax, and Muscle Shoals by saying little prayers for all of my guests tonight. David Vandepit, Harry Weinger, Alan Slutsky, Jerry Wexler, Wayne Jackson, and Arif Mardin. And as ever, thanks to my producer Elizabeth Clark for saying a little prayer for me. Next week, another town, another musical milestone, the sound of Philadelphia. We've also got the great Pee Wee Ellis to get us into a cold sweat over the hits of James Brown. I'm determined to remain Richard Niles so you can join me same time next week here on Radio 2 for my History of Pop Arranging. This is my